Well, good morning, friends and neighbors. Our scripture reading for today is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, and this can be found on page 980 in your pew Bible. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that one home uh, with you as a gift from us. Here is the word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, be to God. Thanks, Dan. Good morning to each of you. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Community, and it's such a joy to serve in that role. And if you are newer with us this morning, we're really glad that you're here. If you are just coming back after having uh, been primarily online for a long time. We're so glad to see your face here this morning as well. And if you are joining us online this morning, we're glad that you are with us in that way. And if you are joining us online, would love to know that you are with us in that way. And so there's a number there on your screen that you can text and let us know that you're there, uh, request prayer, um, and we just would love to include you as part of this caring family, uh, even as you're joining us in that way. Well, as we look now at this passage that Dan read for us this morning already, I would love to uh, just pause as we do each week to pray and ask that Jesus uh, would really uniquely be present in uh, this time and in this space as we, by the power of his spirit, um, inhabit this text this morning. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us the gift of your word that you inspired it, that you preserved it, and that now um, you've even allowed it to be translated into a language that now we can read and understand, and we just pray that as we encounter it this morning, that your spirit would be active, doing the work that only he can do in and through us with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this section of the book of Philippians, Paul's big point, and we're in this series on joy, that's what we've been looking at, 
is the series on joy and how do we get it, how do we return to joy. Paul's big point here this morning in this section is that you cannot be full of self and full of joy at the same time. You can't be full of self and full of joy at the same time. And so I wanted to show you a little bit, as kind of give us an object lesson. I'm not usually a big, you guys know me, I'm not usually a big object lesson uh, you know, kind of communicator. But this morning I, I had an idea and I want to show you this. So I'm going to actually move my, my podium here down for a minute. Let's just set this out of the way so you can see. But Paul's point here is that you cannot be full of joy and full of self at the same time. Those things are incompatible. And so, you know, if this ball here represents just this life of glowing joy and you have this container, this is you, and you are, are full of self, that joy is always just, it's going to rest on the surface of your life and it's never going to sink down deeply. And, and in fact, if joy is sort of just floating, resting on the surface of your life, it's not going to take much of a jolt or a bump in life for that joy just to bounce off, to bounce out of your life. And so Paul's point in this text is he's unpacking joy, though, is if you begin to empty out self. So if we start emptying water out of this jug... And it starts, you're giving out, you're pouring out. And I don't mean self in terms of just giving up your personality, but kind of those preferences, uh, those pet peeves, those, um, you know, those, uh, I don't know, distractions and addictions. As those things begin to pour out of your life, and you start to serve other people, as you're noticing, the joy is sinking in more deeply. And it's going to fill and, and rest more deeply in your life. So I've got a number of these containers here. I was not sure exactly how long it was going to take. I'm not going to empty this entire thing because, you know, I don't want to be here forever. But the more you pour out of your life, right, the more deeply this joy is going to sink in. So it's just going to continue to flow out as you give to others, as you give yourself away, as you give up your preferences, you give up your, your habits, your, your pet peeves for the sake of other people. You now have a joy that's a lot more stable. It's not going to bounce out of your life at the slightest sort of hurdle. Now, one critique that you might say, or one defeater, and I'm gonna bring my, my podium back up here now, that you might say, okay, but Bill, you know, if, if I'm always giving out, if it's true that joy and self are in, incompatible and I'm, I'm always giving out, then, you know, isn't, don't I run the risk of just kind of draining myself dry? And, and one of the things that, that, and that's a really good thing to bring up and to be aware of because, you know, I think there's this, this notion that somehow we can confuse good, healthy self-care with sort of self-absorption. And self-care and self-absorption are not the same thing. They, they are absolutely 100% the opposite, right? So if you do not do healthy practices of self-care, of setting good boundaries, of taking yourself, care of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually, all that, essentially what you do if you're not doing self-care is that you put a cap on the top and joy's not ever going to get in, okay? So self-care is really important. That's not what we're talking about here. What Paul is going after in this text what he's fighting against is that kind of self-absorption. This, this, this desire to always have my own way, to get my own preference. That's what Paul is going after here. And he says that it robs your joy and it actually robs the joy of those in your relationships as well. Because as we've been discovering in this series, the joy is deeply relational. You don't get joy on your own by yourself, but it's, it's a relational concept and construct. Now, this idea of joy and self being incompatible, uh, this is counterintuitive. And it's counterintuitive because, 
Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus says the way to life is death. The way to freedom is by taking on a yoke and learning from him. The way to fruitfulness is pruning. Jesus' kingdom is, paradoxically, it's upside-down. So it's countercultural in that way, but I also think this message, this, this claim that Paul is making here in Philippians chapter 2, that the way to joy is to empty self is counterintuitive in particular in our kind of Western secular culture because the way that the Western secular culture kind of framework says that you find joy is that it's looking inside, I look inside myself, I discover who I really am there as an individual, and then I find joy as I express that to the world. Right? Robert Bella, other sort of uh, psychologists, philosophers who have studied this in our culture, they call it you know, um, kind of a self-expressive individualism. But that's what our culture would say. That's where you find happiness and joy, is, is you look inside of self and then you let the fullness of that be expressed to the world. That's how you find joy and happiness. But Paul says there's something different here. There's actually kind of an an ancient wisdom woven into the fabric of the universe that Jesus has revealed that he's designed that points to a self-emptying as the way to a fullness of joy. Self-emptying is a way to fullness of joy. And so as we walk through this text together this morning, we're going to see three emptyings that lead to a fullness of joy. So three emptyings that lead to a fullness of joy. Of joy. And the first one is this, that joy is full when division is emptied. Joy is full when division is emptied. So I encourage you, if you haven't already, to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you and turn to uh, page 980 there. I'd love for you to just follow along and see some of these things in the passage. So if you grab one of the pew Bibles, or if you don't have one of those handy, or uh, you're still not sure you want to touch a pew Bible, I, I mean, I still get that. Uh, you can pull up your phone. If you just Google Philippians chapter 2, if you put that into Google or Safari or whatever, you, you will find a Bible website that will pull that passage up. But I'd love for you to do that um, with me, to watch along. We have the text up on the screen, but I, there's something powerful, I think, about seeing it in its context and things. So to go ahead and find Philippians chapter 2. Either Google that or, or turn to page 980 in your pew Bible. And then we're, I, wanna, I want us to see this here. And as we read this text, I want you to listen for and look for the language of, of oneness, of sameness, of, of purpose. We're going to see that all throughout. Now, something, just even as you're continuing to navigate there to find that, um, you know, the Bible is divided up into chapters and verses. But those were not originally there. Those were added as we began to print Bibles, and it makes it a lot easier to, to all get on the same page really quickly. So there's nothing wrong with the verses and chapter editions. But just to know, like, these, are, these were added by people later on to make it easier to find the same spot. We can all say, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we can all get there really quickly. Why do I point that out? I just point that out to say, sometimes those can get in the way when we're reading the flow of thought. Because Paul wrote Philippians as one continuous letter. He wasn't breaking it up into these subsections. I don't imagine typically when you write an email to a friend, kind of updating them on your life, that you write like chapters and verses so you guys all can refer back to that wonderful sentence that you wrote in chapter two of your email. So just so you know, that's the case. So why do I bring that up? I'm actually going to start reading in chapter one at the the end to give us the flow of thought here. So hopefully you have Philippians chapter two handy. I'm going to start reading in verse... 27 of chapter 1. And again, listen for the language of sameness, unity, oneness here. Paul writes this, only let your manner of life 
Verse 27, be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Last week, we looked a lot at suffering and joy. So we might want to go back and, and engage there. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I still have. And he continues now in chapter two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You can't miss in that section this, this language of oneness, of sameness, of, of unity that Paul highlights here. Unity completes joy. Unity completes joy. And you notice what Paul says there in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and the same purpose. One of the things that we've been highlighting all throughout the series in joy is that it is a deeply relational concept. It's a deeply relational reality. That joy is the, the, the experience of having someone who is glad to be with you. It's not based on our circumstances, but it's based on relationship. And Paul actually says there is something lacking in his joy that only this Philippian church can fill up. He says, make my joy complete. There is a joy gap in Paul's life that he says this Philippian church, you can help fill this up. Joy is a deeply relational concept. And what Paul then gets at here is that division, that conflict, rob joy. They steal joy. They disrupt joy because if relationships are the heart of joy, if experiencing someone being glad to be with you, you enjoying them enjoying you and vice versa, if it's deeply relational, then division and conflict, they destroy relationships, the very source of joy that we are longing for. And so you can begin to see now why Paul says that unity, that's this kind of being of the same mind, having the same purpose, standing in oneness together is so important to joy because if we don't have that, we've, we've cut off the relational power that releases joy. Now, division in the church is certainly nothing new. I mean, Paul is writing this letter probably around 80, 50, 80, 60. So, I mean, if he's addressing unity in the church just... Uh, a few decades after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we know that division in the church is nothing new. It's something that we have battled as people, as humans, from the garden onward after sin enters in. But I just, I mean, I, I, you felt it. I think we've all felt it. That this past year, year and a half, between the pandemic and the political climate, all that has been a year of profound division in the church. And I don't just mean in the culture as well, but it's, it's, it's spread throughout the church. And I don't just mean kind of the church out there somewhere. I mean, I've seen it at Christ's community. I think we've probably felt it at Christ's community at times. Division over all kinds of things. 
Again, from pandemic to politics, all kinds of things. And it can rob joy. So how do we move away from division? Well, Paul says here that we have to have the same mind, that the way that we empty division from the community is having the same mind. Now, some of you might be a bit skeptical when you hear that same mind idea and think, okay, that, wait a second. That could be dangerous. Because that's kind of, because that could, that's, that's how, isn't that how like kind of cults form, right? Like that there's this kind of dyma- dynamic charismatic leader who demands like a same kind of thinking for everyone. Everyone has to stop thinking for themselves. Everyone has a kind of a, a sameness of mind. Now, isn't that, isn't that dangerous? Don't, don't we need to think for ourselves? That's a really good point because there is a danger in kind of a rigid sort of a mind control, an absolute uniformity of thought. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about a uniformity of thought, but rather a uniformity of purpose. Not a uniformity of thought, but a uniformity of purpose. He's having, we have the same goal, the same mindset. Healthy conflict is actually really important for relationships. But healthy conflict is different than division. We actually have a whole message in Philippians later on. Paul's going to address two people in this church who are having a disagreement. So what does it look like to have healthy disagreements? We're going to get there later on in this teaching series. But uh, Dr. Tony Evans, who's a preacher, a writer, has done so much great uh, work in uh, so many areas. But he has given an illustration I think is so helpful. And he talks about um, what does you know, Paul mean by this kind of unity that having the same mind is like a football team. And so, so you have a football team, right? You have lots of diversity of roles and specialties. You have offense, defense, special teams, you know, different. You don't want your, your kicker playing offensive line, right? They're very different body types, different kind of training regiments. Although, I don't know, who knows? Maybe having a kicker play offensive line for Patrick Mahomes this past year would have been better than uh, what he actually had uh, during the Super Bowl. But you have a wide, right, a wide variety of roles, lots of diversity on a football team. But when the game starts, everybody has the same goal, like win the game, right? Everybody has the same purpose. They're all working toward. And so it's not about a uniformity of of person, but a uniformity of purpose. We need lots of diversity in the body of Christ. So one of the beautiful things about how the gospel works is that it draws people together who would otherwise never be together. You look back at Acts chapter 16 when this church that Paul's writing to was founded and you have a blue-collar worker, a businesswoman, and an oppressed slave girl who otherwise would never hang out together, who all end up in the same church together. So that we need profound diversity in the body of Christ, but with a unity of purpose, a unity of goal. So division is empty when we have the same mindset, when we have the same goal. And what is that goal? Just remind us briefly, what is the mission? To make disciples. To help other people fall in love with Jesus and his lifestyle. To receive the good news of grace and forgiveness. To learn to live life with him. That's what we're called to. So that's the first thing, that joy is full when division is emptied. But here's the next thing that has to be emptied if joy is going to be full, and that is preference. Joy is full when preference is emptied. 
Joy is full of preferences empty. Now, in verses 1 and 2 that we just looked at, Paul was encouraging this kind of positive work of having the same mind. That you sort of, I want positively for you to strive to have the same mind, this unity of purpose. Now here in verses 3 and 4, he actually now kind of addresses a negative. This is something that I don't want you to have. He names two things here that I, you, you, I want you to get rid of. So verses 3 and 4, he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul names there in verse 3 two joy killers, two sort of negative things we've got to get out that are destroying joy. And they're selfish ambition and conceit. Those are the, what he names there, selfish ambition and conceit. So just briefly, what, what are those two things? So selfish ambition... Selfish ambition is this idea that I am going to get my needs met at the cost of others. I'm going to get my way at the expense of other people. That's what selfish ambition is. And I think it's something we recognize so, so quickly, so easily in kids, right? You, you, you see kids fighting over a toy. I'm sure none of the kids here in this room right now who are all amazing would ever fight with their brother or sisters over a toy or whose turn it is to play the Xbox next. And I think as parents, kids, I just want to get in a secret, kids. I think as parents, like, it's easy for us to see that and be so frustrated, like, oh, why can't you just share? Why can't you just take turns? But somehow as adults, like, we're so blinded to the fact that when the toy becomes this house that we're bidding on, or the turn becomes a promotion we're striving for at work, how quickly that kind of same sort of selfish ambition that we're so quick to, like, point out in our kids just rises up inside of us, trying to get what, what we want at the expense of others. That's selfish ambition. The next thing Paul mentioned there is conceit. Uh, the, the language is literally uh, empty glory. If you were just to do the most literal kind of translation of the, of the word there, it's empty glory. And, and it's really what kind of in the classic kind of Christian tradition out through the, the long ages of the church is it's the vice of vainglory. So maybe if you've grown up in a, a, you know, a Roman Catholic context or a more kind of traditional church context, maybe you've heard this language of vainglory as a, as a type of, of a seven, one of the seven deadly sins. <clears throat> That's what this language of conceit is. But I don't know about you, I don't use the language of vainglory a lot in my day-to-day conversation. So what is this empty conceit, this vain glory? I think the best way to talk about this is to say vain glory is all about looking good without actually being good. Vain glory is all about looking good, striving to look good without caring about actually being good. That's at the heart of vain glory. That you're so concerned with appearances, how people perceive you, but you don't necessarily care if there's substance to match that on the inside. It's an empty glory. It reminds me of a, a tree that we had in our front yard. Um, it was a beautiful tree, and it, it, every year it would get these wonderful green leaves on it, and in the fall they would fall, and the next spring they'd come back. And, but I, I noticed that as long you know, as long we lived at the house, at the base of the tree, there was this little kind of split at it, and I, I noticed that it just, it seemed like water would kind of collect in there, and it was kind of mushy, 
I thought, you know, I should eventually, we should have somebody look at this tree and see if there's a, you know, a disease happening or something going on. So I had an arborist come out and look at the tree. I mean, it took the guy like five minutes of looking at the tree. He said, this thing has to come down. So you're, you're like one windstorm away from this tree just coming down on your house or a car or someone walking down the sidewalk. This tree is not, but, but it looked great on the outside. And it wasn't dead, you know, there were still leaves, it was a full, but the inside of that tree had just rotted out. That's what vain glory does. You can look really good on the outside, but there is, it just is rotting out the inside. You care more about looking good than actually being good. And, and Paul says that those two things, that kind of selfish ambition, that vain glory, that those things destroy a community full of joy. Again, because joy is so deeply re- relational. And because joy is so deeply relational, when you have people who are trying to get their own way at the expense of others, or who are always sort of looking out for number one and trying to be more concerned about how they look and how they're perceived than actually about being people of character, then that creates a, a community where people are going to have lots of division, for one, it's not going to be a safe place to be. So people are going to hide. They're going to hedge. It all destroys joy. All destroys joy. Okay. So how do we, how do we escape that? How do we empty that kind of out? And the key here is to put people before our preference. To put people before our preferences. This is how we begin to get out of this. And again, having preferences, there's nothing wrong with having preferences, right? There's nothing wrong with, with liking certain styles of, of worship music on a Sunday morning or certain ways of, of doing things in another. Preferences are great. And again, that's part of the diversity that God has created us as human beings. Having preferences is part of being human, and that's not a bad thing. The problem comes, though, when we begin to put our preferences over other people, and particularly over their needs. You know, what Paul says here, look not only to your own needs, and look not only to your own preferences, what would be comfortable for you, what would be happy for you, but, but also to the needs of others. He doesn't say ignore your preferences, but he says don't look only to those. Look also to the needs and preferences of others. Again, this is not about being a doormat, right? And, and there have been people in the church, right, who have used these kinds of verses to, to sort of say, you, you, you should just always give out and you should never, you know, have any boundaries. That's not what we're talking about here. But Paul's going after that part in each of us. He's like, I'm just looking out for number one. I'm going to make sure I get what I want. Paul says that's deadly to a community of joy. It's deadly to a community of joy. And I think one of the ways that we can practice this together, and, and again, because, you know, two things here. One, if you have a community of people who are always looking out, not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others, you don't have to worry about being taken advantage because other people are going to be looking out for your interests, right? But again, this has, there has to be a mutuality of that because we only have a few people <laughs> who are looking out for the interests of others, not only themselves, they are going to get taken advantage. But if you have a whole community of people who are doing that together, there's a mutuality. What are some ways of practicing this practically? At work, at school, at home this week? Of sort of 
this giving up your preference. Well, Christian philosopher, uh, thinker Dallas Willard had this great kind of practice. He called it the discipline of not having the last word. You know Dallas Willard, brilliant philosopher, taught at USC. Lots of, you know, as a philosopher, he's in lots of different debates and classroom lectures and those kind of things. And he said he really practiced the discipline of not having the last word of being able to express his opinion, express his argument, and then being able to to listen to a response, but not always feeling like he had to give a rebuttal, a reply, a pushback, and always have the last word. That's really hard. It's hard for me, especially when I know I'm right. (laughs) Right? To have the discipline of not having the last word. But again, how would that begin to transform some of those relationships in your life? You just say, I'm, I'm going to say what I think is important. I'm going to make, make a case and express an opinion or make an argument for why we should do it this way, but I'm willing to not have the last word. How that might infuse some joy to give up some preference. It's really key. It's really key. Because again, we think about this too at the end of our lives. What, what do we want to be known for, right? Nobody wants you know, at your funeral for the, the eulogy to be, you know what? She was a great person. You know, she, she always got her way. You know, she, she always fought to get hers. Uh, you know, she, she, she always made sure her preferences were the ones that won out. I know, like, none of us wants that to be how people remember us or what characterizes our life. No, this person, she served. She loved others selflessly. She, she, she was always willing to be able to kind of to sacrifice. He, he was willing to give up what was important to him sometimes so that others could flourish. And Jesus actually shows us the way to do this. Because, and this is the key, this is the heart, the beating heart of this text. Is Paul is saying, I, I'm actually going to ask you to, to take on the life of Christ. Because you've been united to him by faith. You actually are his body. You are in union with him in this mysterious way, by faith. You are connected to Christ in a vital way. And this is actually how Jesus lived. So this is our third emptying here, that we find our joy full when we follow Jesus in emptying ourselves. And and verses 5 through 8 here, again, this is the heart of this passage. And I think sometimes when we come to this place, if you've read the Bible before, you're familiar with the Bible, and you've read Philippians before, maybe you kind of come to this and you're like, oh wow, this is the part where we really talk about who Jesus is and his divinity and all that he accomplished. And we sort of almost view it as a theological aside, like that Paul is just kind of going off on, on a little theological tangent to say, look at how amazing Jesus is. Which it's not less than that, but, but he's not just saying, here, let me give you a little bit of information on how cool Jesus is. He's actually saying, have the same mind. This is a practical example, because this is one of the most sort of soaring descriptions of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. But it's not just a theological aside, but a deeply practical example Paul's saying, if you want to know what I'm talking about in verses 1 through 4 of this, of this chapter, again, he wouldn't have said verses 1 through 4, but what I'm talking about in the earlier portion of this letter, look at Jesus. If you want to know how to do verses 1 through 4, if you want to know what that looks like, look at verses 5 through 8, which say this, 
Paul says this, have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. There's this downward movement. You see that Jesus is the highly exalted one who descends, who empties himself, who takes on humanity, who becomes a servant. Now, there's part of us, because we live in Western culture, that has been so deeply and profoundly influenced by Christian ethics that this actually doesn't shock us because we sort of expect in our cultural context that leaders ought to be selfless, that they should be looking out for the needs of others, that that is what it is to be a leader, right? Whether it's Simon Sinek's idea of of leaders eat last or the language of servant leadership, we, we kind of take for granted and we sort of get frustrated when we see people out there who we see as hypocritical leaders who are just in that position to serve themselves, that we have so been influenced by a Christian ethic in the West that that seems just normal. That is the expectation. Of course, leaders should be selfless. But in the ancient world where Paul is writing this 2,000 years ago in Rome and certainly even in other cultural contexts in the ancient world, the idea is if you were the king, if you were the highly exalted one, the world existed to serve you. That was the expectation. So this idea that the highly exalted king would take on the form of a servant becomes incredibly radical. Peter O'Brien, who's an Australian New Testament scholar, he, he points this out. He says, look, if Jesus is in this kind of, this true king, the highly exalted one, if he is the one who takes on the form, this is so radically different. Listen to this. He says, Jesus understood his position to mean giving, not getting And thus he chose the path of incarnation. Incarnation means the the path of Jesus becoming a human and death. Jesus understood his position to mean giving, not getting, which is 180 degrees from how ancient kings thought about their position. But I do want to ask a little bit of a theological aside question for us this morning about this, because it's one that comes up a lot from this text. Which is, okay, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Right? Paul says that in verse 7, but he emptied himself. And a lot of conversation has been had and, and theological discussion and debate has been had. Well, what did Jesus empty himself of? And the key thing to understand here is that Jesus uh, did not empty himself of any of who he was as truly and fully God. He did not become less than God in taking on his humanity. This is the core claim of Christianity. That Jesus is both truly and fully God as well has become truly and fully human. So in this emptying, he's not emptying himself of any of his divinity, any of of who he is as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Rather, this emptying means that he is giving himself out, pouring himself out on our behalf, giving himself completely to us for our sake. 
And you might also ask, but then what about this language of the form of God? So he's in the form of God. Does that mean he's not actually God? And I think this is, the, again, we're having some scholarship on, on what did the, some of these words mean in the original language is so helpful, because sometimes in translation, things get fuzzy. And Gordon Fee is so, so key in helping us understand here. Again, this idea of emptying, it's a metaphor for service. This form of God, form of servant language, this is really key. We'll take a look at this. So is that, when we talk about the form of something, we're talking about that which truly characterizes a given reality. Not meaning that he, Jesus, was like God, but not, but really not, but that he was characterized by what was essential to being God. So this is, this is key. To say he's in the form of God is to say he is God. He is truly and fully God. So Jesus didn't exchange the form of God for the form of, of a servant. Rather, Jesus expresses the form of a servant. He expresses what it means to be God in the form of being a servant. So because Jesus emptied himself, we can empty ourselves also. And this is where sort of the rubber meets the road for those of us who are followers of Jesus, is saying, okay, how do I begin to find ways to give up my preference, to empty myself for the sake of others? And this takes a lot of faith. I think, again, sometimes in Christianity, we can have this mindset that faith is primarily this one-time decision that I make to trust Jesus so that I, I can, you know, not go to hell and go to heaven when I die. And it's sort of just this, this transaction that takes place once. I, I have faith, then I, I'm sort of rescued from my sin. I can go to heaven and, and, and sort of faith goes back on the shelf. But faith is, is not a one-time act. It's actually the way that we see the world and, and actually take a living step of life into all the life that Jesus has called us to. So why, why do I press into that here? Because there are going to be moments in your life that if you take Jesus seriously, I love that there's a, a pastor named John Mark Homer, and he, he asked the question often that if we love Jesus, can we not also love his lifestyle? And I think sometimes we want that. Like, I, I like the idea of Jesus, I just don't want to live the life that Jesus lived. But if we love Jesus, we have to love his lifestyle. And that's why faith is so key, because there are going to come moments in your week, in your day, where emptying yourself, giving up what you want, giving up your preference, is going to feel incredibly risky, incredibly difficult, and you're going to have to have faith in that moment that Jesus, I'm going to step out in obedience over what feels like a chasm, and that you are going to meet me in that place. It's not just a one-time decision somewhere in the past. Faith is the way that you live the Christian life. And, and if you're, you cannot obey Jesus without faith, because there's going to come moments, again, where this seems counterintuitive, where you're going to feel incredibly at risk by doing this, and you're going to say, Jesus, I'm going to step out. I'm going to do what you say, and I'm going to step off and trust that you're going to meet me in that space. And here's the thing. You will only be able to have that kind of faith in Jesus if you see him, if you see him like Paul sees him here at the end of this passage. So as we conclude here, let, let me read to you how Paul concludes. It's only when you begin to see Jesus like this that you have the kind of faith to obey and to trust in this day-to-day -day life kind of stuff 
when it doesn't seem like it's going to make sense. Verse 9, therefore, Paul writes, God has highly exalted him, has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's like when Paul gets to this section, he's, he's made his point. I mean, he's kind of gotten to it in verse 8 and, he, and then he, he extends it in verse 9 now that Jesus has not only descended to death on a cross, but now he's been raised back up to new life and is reigning in the universe. But he, he just can't stop. He just breaks into like, sort of like a hymn of praise here. He can't help himself. He can't help but worship and again, if there's any question about sort of early Christians and their understanding of, of Jesus as, as truly divine, Paul's actually quoting in these verses, he's referencing, alluding to Isaiah chapter 43. And he actually puts Jesus' name in the place of the name of Yahweh. He's equating Jesus with the creator God of the Old Testament. This is incredibly high view of Jesus. You can't get a higher view of Jesus than Paul has here right now. Paul, he loves Jesus. That's what comes through so clear, that his relationship to Jesus is not just one of sort of a slave to a master. It's not just one of, of, of sort of a begrudging acknowledgement that Jesus is king, but that Paul has actually come to this place of he loves Jesus. He can't get enough of Jesus. See, our joy is full when we are able with Paul to fall down and worship to see Jesus, what he's done for us. That he was willing to, to come, to take the form of a servant, to go to the place of dying on the cross, death, even death on the cross, because he wanted to have a relationship with us. When you begin to have that, again, because if joy is really about someone being glad to be with you, Christians say that the ultimate someone, capital S someone, has gone to extreme lengths to be with you because he delights in you and he loves you and he wants to be with you. It's only when you begin to see Jesus like that that you have the kind of faith that can empower an obedience that will lead to a fullness of joy. It's only when we begin to empty out ourselves, right, that this joy can sink deeply into our lives in an unshakable kind of way. And friends, when we as a community begin to have that kind of joy, there's nothing that Jesus can't do with us as his church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would fill us with a deep, unshakable joy as we empty ourselves, as we follow Jesus in not getting our own way, not looking only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that feels like a kind of death, but you are a God who promises that life is found on the other side of death. So would you give us the faith to take those steps that feel like death, that we might find life, find it abundantly, find it full of joy. In Jesus' name, we pray.